I'm William Jess Laird. This is Image Culture. Today on the show, I'm talking with photographer and sculptor Vicente Munoz, whose work I found uniquely resonant in its engagement with architecture and optical phenomenon. He has a new book out now entitled Virtual Transparency, which gathers a body of work originally started in 2015. The book focuses on the glass curtain architecture that defines New York City's skyscrapers. Working in extremely long focal lengths, Vicente photographs the reflections of one building in another, but much of his attention is on the glass itself, specifically an optical phenomenon known as roller wave distortion, caused by imperfections in the manufacturing process and which creates unexpected bends and diffractions of light. The resulting photographs are abstracted to the point that at first I thought they might be illustrations. And I have to say that after spending some time with this book, I started seeing these distortions everywhere. I photographed Vicente one day on the roof of his studio in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, and in the photograph you can see him handling these concrete blocks in different colors. These were cast as part of his body of work, Beton, which examines the legacy of brutalist architecture. You can see the portrait on our website at williamjesslaird.com slash imageculture. I'll also drop a link to Virtual Transparency on Amazon in the show notes, so if you're interested, I recommend you pick up a copy. Here I am with Vicente Munoz. Well, Sandy, thanks so much for having me over. Of course. Pleasure to have you over and be part of, of the show. Uh, the show is official now because last, uh, last night my roommate Savannah came home and she had an image culture mug. Oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> so it's like, it to the next level. I was like, yes, now, we're, <laughs> now it's a real show. The merch makes it official. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so where, where to start? I, I suppose, uh, tell me about where you grew up. I grew up in Ecuador, in Guayaquil, in mm-hmm. South America. Um, spent there most of my life up until I was like 19, mm-hmm. when I went to undergrad to Penn State. It, uh, I would go back and forth, and I was always like, like growing up, we would travel a lot and mm-hmm. do like the museum circuit with my family, or like take like a sort of like study trip to explore a city and like its anchors culturally. Mm-hmm. There was always that sort of like desire and impetus as a family to do together and like nourish uh, that. My parents were very diligent with that uh, type what they of. Do? We would go to like, um, I don't know, like we would go check out London and go see the Tate or go check out like Tate Britain or some of the institutions that were free. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like you usually come to the U.S. and you encounter that museums are like paid and that sort of like deters certain tourists to go. I think that's a new phenomenon. Like a lot Mm -hmm. of the a lot of the museums and like in New York and honestly for for me or whatever, you know, I don't think it's that big of a deal, but I can't imagine if you're a family. Yeah. Like, I went to the Guggenheim to see the Hilma Off Clint show the other day. How was that? I mean, it was great, but uh, but $25 it ticket. Sets you, it sets you back. Family of four, like, yeah. that's a that's a big day, you know? Yeah, for that's, sure. It, I kind of, I don't know, I feel like it should be sort of a sliding scale or something. I appreciate know? what European cities do in that mm-hmm. sense. You know, it's like part of like where the taxpayers' money should go subsidize. So Absolutely. The culture is like number one, you know? So in that yeah. sense... I was lucky enough to have that sort of experience. My parents, they were, they did not come from like a, uh, an art world sort of like realm. What did, what did they do? What my my mom was, she held a degree. She went and did like business school, but like she took care of us. And my dad, he he had always worked in finance and. Uh, and investment banking mm-hmm. that's that's what he did uh like one of my siblings my younger brother has joined him in the firm and and that's always been their their trade you was know? that ever supposed to be you were you ever supposed to join in the firm definitely i mean <laughs> uh, for me uh, my whole preparation has been a bit of like self-teaching myself the interest i'm a very curious person mm-hmm. and like i've always had like multiple hobbies or things that i wanted to like explore or crack down or like figure out and uh and yeah, I mean, like I was definitely uh, boxed into a, a career path that I was supposed to follow, and it wasn't until like my seventh semester in uh, in college where I was doing economics that I realized that I was not gonna sit down and crunch crunching numbers and mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. master Excel sheet. You know, I respect that sort of like it, there is creativity to it. Mm-hmm. Aquarial creativity. I just did not come with that sort of thing, and the the morale aspect of like handling other people's finances and that risk factor was never something that I felt came in my DNA. I had other sensibilities that I definitely wanted to delve into. You know, that's a funny way to put it because there is like that crazy responsibility. One hundred percent. You know, you're guaranteeing results. It's like mm-hmm. 
I get that, like it's an, an attitude and like a frame of mind, but no, I don't think everyone is cut for it, mm -hmm. honestly. I mean, I guess you thought you were going to do that. What changed that second year of college? I mean, it was... Um, what hobby took your interest? I, in it wasn't particularly a hobby, but it was like kind of like, I mean, I one thing that I didn't mention about my parents was that the, my mother was always like the shutterbug of the family. Mm -hmm. She was always like diligent about documenting everything you know we're talking about like the 90s so it was mm -hmm. like definitely a 35 millimeter like frenzy of like multiple roles sending mm -hmm, developing mm -hmm. in trips or like at family gatherings there was always that stuff then later like video like kept the camera recording while we were having like <laughs> like a, a normal like birthday party or whatever so I grew you still up have all the tapes and everything it's funny you say that but yes i mean she managed to like record them on a cd mm -hmm. and i have a rip of that yeah. cd somewhere it's CD a great thing to have it's, it's super it, cool yeah, yeah i think that one of the most fascinating things is like to see how like people look completely different but mm -hmm. the voices remain like the same yeah. when you're looking at yeah, it yeah. you're like wait what but yeah i mean um seeing a little bit of like richard soul Warman, who's mm -hmm. like a graphic designer sort of like artist um and and that type of like graphic design slash art mm -hmm. realm mm -hmm. that operated there Got me a little more curious about it than I got like a, uh, a digital camera in addition to some of the old 35 millimeter stuff that I had. So it gave a little more like a less costly, more efficient sort of like mm -hmm. practice to, to, to do it. But again, it started definitely as like a, a study. I want a desire to wanting to like revisit things, mm -hmm. you know, which I think is like a very important aspect of, of photography. You know? So that's really when you started. Definitely, yes. So that's pretty, it's pretty late, honestly. I mean, super late. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 there are recollections of roles of film that I shot when I was very young, like yeah. 13, that I keep with me still, and, uh, and, and I have them, and I don't, I don't consider uh, th those were kind of like accidents or like a, like a kind of like a curiosity sort of thing that yeah. was already happening before, but I wasn't like practicing up until, yeah, very late, I mean. Well, it's funny. It's like an intention thing, right? Because yeah. like everyone, we like everyone takes so many photographs now. Like everyone takes like yes. you know twenty photographs a day. Yeah, it's absurd. But yeah, it is that there's something that switches when you're like I'm trying to make a photograph. Totally. You know what I mean? There, when it goes beyond the kind of information. Uh huh. Or, yeah, um, I mean, uh, yeah. For me, it was that. It was that like sort of. I think it's like uh, Winogrand who says that he just wanted to take pictures to like see a better reality. You know, mm -hmm. and like when you when you study the classics like that, and then you see that when technology was completely different that was like their their desire their motivation and he's not the only one there's been many others who have cited that that's mm -hmm. like kind of like why they do it i've connected always with that thought because it is true you know and i think that now with megapixels and like technology or like like super like high resolution like scanners that are for mm -hmm. film it's like it's it is really this practice offers you uh, almost like an augmented type of like reality that is better than than reality itself, you know, mm -hmm. and like you're able to dissect at your own pace and you start picking up certain things that, you know, that like that, that are imperceptible for the common to the naked eye. Mm -hmm. I feel. So I think that that was definitely the kickoff moment to, to, to begin that exploration. So, so you mentioned Winogrand, who were you? What kind of work were you thinking about or looking at at the time? Like, what was that? What were those first pictures I'd, like? I I did like a lot of like the the the, the city mm -hmm. sort of like a fabric a little bit of like that sort of um, like street photography st a little bit yes like with people in it the very the very early work was street photography for sure it's so funny that was what my first pictures were like yeah. too. It's kind of like the, the, the bedrock, you know, or the basis. I agree. I mean, I've always been moved by it. I've, I've, I've encountered that it's very cathartic to be on the streets with a camera at like a very given time of day with when the light is, lends itself for that type of capture and contrast. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a timelessness aspect of it. You know, I think that when you look at those photos of like Winogrand or, or, or Cartier-Bresson or all of the, the street photography masters, there is a timelessness like you look at those photos that are from the 50s 60s and everything and they are modern mm -hmm. very modern in their in their compositions and very modern in their dynamic dynamic properties that they have in terms of like light and, and, and narrative and, and stuff like that and that that's that's kind of like caught my eye you know having that the skill set be able to like tell a timeless story or mm -hmm. let you connect with something that happened before but at the same time is so relevant you mm -hmm. know so photography comes in then so 
I guess the other side of it for your works particularly is architecture. When yes. did when did that when did that, love of architecture? That, that, that goes back to like thirteen years of age and like the travels and the trips and being to places, experiencing places. I think that's the, the architecture aspect definitely comes from them. Mm-hmm. Do you remember like those first like a first uh, experience where you really Yeah, Pantheon in Rome is like one that is like like shocking that like I it happened when I was like maybe I went in the 2000s, so I was like 16 years of age. Mm-hmm. And then like going again later when I'm like 24 or something, mm-hmm. wanting to get something out of there. It's like, it's 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 the same space, but you just read it differently. You know, mm-hmm. I think that the context, the intellectual context confronting architecture based on memory, based on, based, based on having experienced other things mm-hmm. and contextualizing is, is fascinating. And having the tool of, of, of photography and now other things that I have incorporated in my art practice, such as like sculpture and like other or or fabrication processes that Mm -hmm. are included to it. it, It's fascinating because it's like, it's like memory. It's like, it's almost, you're able to like recreate certain aspects of it or dissect certain aspects that you like consider relevant or important pertaining to whatever project I'm working on. But I'm saying it's just like technology, architecture and photography. I think that are three anchors that like are part of the work and are and have been deep interests of mine for over a decade i would say interesting well let's start with let's start with the with vt (laughs) virtual transparency so virtual transparency uh amazing book by the way i just have to say it and it's it's new and when's it coming out it's coming out uh next week it should be uh ready to go in amazon and be able to be bought anywhere in the world uh next week so yeah um, i mean that project started from a desire to materialize something that I couldn't quite determine what it was. It's, it, 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 it first started as like a light study. I think mm-hmm. that light as a concept is a very big and loaded term in, in, in many ways. But uh, to me, it's like we are light. We exude light. We, we, light is among us. We are beings of light. Like You can put it in like a spiritual kind of sense. Mm-hmm. And I see it as such, but I can also be seen as like a sort of like a physical kind of like non-tangible element that it's present so for me part of the materiality and exploration on tectonics mm-hmm. of architecture has been that sort of like seeing it as a seeing it or them as a vessels of light mm-hmm. so for uh, virtual transparency i was fascinated by the by the impenetrability and like a symmetry of information and structure of power that high rises that the high rise has been and represents mm-hmm. as like a passerby any person is triggered surrounded by the muscular towers whatnot all over the big metropolis so i wanted to do an exercise of trying to see uh the shell that what 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 protected these towers which is ironically glass mm-hmm. you know it's like it's, it's the one it's like a super um frail and like fragile material that like has its own problems yet we we still consider like the the, the highest grade material the most luxury the most protective enclosing uh, that like that, that the towers had so I and ironically it's kind of become the most ubiquitous too right you know true. It's, it's, it's got universal yeah you know? absolutely. It's like, and I think that like it's funny that that you mentioned that because the designs are like sometimes it's funny it happens with certain of these like high caliber architect projects yeah, that yeah. you end up seeing them being in one place and then like they ended up being transplanted to mm-hmm. another place just because of like budget or whatever constraints they may have yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah it's like a universality to it it's like a language that many countries speak even in like i mean i come from a developing country and and, and yeah even then you see you see that it's like a an ideal of sorts well everyone I mean. wants to have the trappings of power you yeah, know what i mean yeah. and and it's funny because it, it's it's just like anything it's like fashion and it kind of uh it travels many places and it gets diffused down you know so now you can sort of put this glass curtain facade on a, on your you know even like relatively budget or relatively modest budget office building and all of a sudden you know it sort of sort of feels like a like a nice it doesn't know, have a diagram like john Nouvelle's does yeah. but, but it, 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 it kind of looks the same you know? yeah because it's, it's in a yeah. different place you know totally uh as a sidebar it's very funny that, that in in 
like in Bataan, you're 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 exploring brutalism, and mm-hmm. in virtual transparency, you're exploring glass curtain architecture, which pretty much are the opposite. <laughs> ends Literally, of the I mean that, that's that's exactly how it happened because yeah. in, in in virtual transparency, it was I I, I was I was concerned with the utopian use of both of the materials like yeah. in the beginning glass was sort of like offering a view and offering like connection with nature and all these yeah. like silly things mm-hmm. now that people were not really considering that they were just gonna fry because of the sun in like a space that only had glass <laughs> you know, so it's like it was kind of like an ideal that like had to be shape-shifted through like some of the things that the project explored which was like the defects that happened in this sort of like perfect or sort of somewhat perfect material. Industrial effects that happen when you try treat and the glass. treat a glass to make it viable industrially. Exactly. Right? So I had yeah. the luck of having like my my good friend and neighbor who's a contributor to the book who worked in an enclosure company and like after being fascinated and shooting lots of these distortions on the glass and like and like seeing all these kinds of crazy effects that he was doing, whether you were close or you were far away. So I, I approached him and I was like, yo, can you like check this out and, and tell me a little bit about it you know it's like and I had done my research a little bit and uh, but but he really got deep into the stuff and was telling me like the different types of treatment of glass with annealed glass that it's kind of like an alloy of glass and metal and like all these different like tiers of like luxury level of treatment of mm-hmm. the glass that to me was almost like like jewels you know mm-hmm. it's like it's almost talking about like you know like polishing or cuts on like diamonds you know what I mean it's like it had that level of like refinement that like that from a design point, it sort of like really caught my interest because is this Paul Knox? Paul Knox, who wrote the the in the, the, the title essay of the of the book. Correct. That was kind of like the gateway to continue to explore with more of a purpose and understanding that the roller waves were a thing that is like that limited the aesthetic thing of the, the of the building you know it, it's it, funny we should we should kind of explain what it what it is for people cuz cuz i remember sure. this was one of those those kind of optical phenomena that mm-hmm. if you describe it it's kind of hard to picture totally. but once you see it you get it immediately and it's funny cuz paul's essay is kind of like a condensed history of like glass architecture you know and yeah and the the load bearing wall and mm-hmm. understanding that like through the history of architecture 100% i think he did a great job at synthesizing it absolutely and, uh, and it's also te- like kind of almost like a technical essay you know? which is like i i i've heard the term roller wave distortion but i didn't know that it actually comes from the impressions that the ro- like that the rollers that glass rests on when it's being heated or cooled make on it which causes these kind of like like it, it the like lines lines kind of roll with the light as they And there reflected. are different orientations of them. Yeah, you know, yeah. different there, there's variations from within the thing, but yeah. Probably depending on how fancy your your glass <laughs> manufacturer exactly. is. Exactly. Right? And there's different things. There's IGUs which are insulating glass units when it's like it becomes more of like a, a a sandwich or or like a let's just call it like a box of mm-hmm. glass that it has like a metal frame and it contains both both glasses in there separated by a butyl gas mm-hmm. in there that can be affected also by the physics of of this world like if that's if they say if the gas were produ- produced at a low altitude type of place and then the 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 the, the the units are transported to a higher altitude, mm-hmm. there may be a, what's called pillowing, where like the glass would like swell and mm-hmm. like that generates a different type of distortion. So based on like the urban fabric and like the density of on cities like New York and Chicago, where most of the images for this project were made, you could see that the variations of depending on the different type of like construction standards mm-hmm. that each project has and, and the city's code to, to treat the glass, mm-hmm. The configurations of like this surface, which also has a property of reflecting, so it was kind of like a a multiplying a- a aspect. It's almost like for me, the project is like a, trying to capture like the no- the non space almost. You know, like what what it's, it's creating matter on like a place that it's like that doesn't really exist. That is yeah. a space in between the density of the cities that we live in. So in that sense, I think that's what the book does a great job at putting together in dialogue and trying to understand and seeing a city in a different way. Yeah. And yeah, I, I find it interesting from a, from a design point that it's uh, it's still a frontier that we cannot conquer, you mm-hmm. know, like we're trying to make the perfect glass tower, yet it's still not so perfect, you know? There's something about power, like, mixed in there, too, like with glass architecture. I, 
I remember I, I read an essay that I think uh, the photographer Jeff Wall wrote, um, but it, it was about how, how glass curtain architecture has this unique quality of we tend to be able to look out of a glass tower, but when you try and look in, you, it, you know, you're sort of met with a distortion similar to the one you're photographing. You know, yeah. the the gaze kind of can't penetrate the glass. It's like a one. It's like one way vision. It's 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 yeah. It's definitely like that. I think Baudrillard spoke uh, a lot about about that. He actually took pictures, which I found fascinating. Oh, interesting. Yeah. If you Google Google them, he, I think he did a show uh, years ago mm -hmm. that contained some of his photography, and I, I thought that with glass, beautiful. Yes, about wow. the distortions to a degree. Uh, f f more from pull out they weren't mm -hmm. like up close like details but yes he commented on the structures of power and like how he felt like they, the high rise and this level of high rise encompassed what everything that America was in a, in a way it's interesting like in, in, in what in sense America what was in, in a argument? sense that like it like contained all of the all of the multitudes in terms of like the scale and muscularity and like and, uh, and, and a symmetry of information mm -hmm. again like with like power uh, there's no exchange of power the person down there has no vantage point or of what the person up there yeah. has you know so maybe maybe this Jeff Wall essay is him talking about it, it, I feel like it might be <laughs> it's it very might possible be, yeah this I read it a long time ago but yeah because I feel a, like they collaborated with Jeff Wall and Baudrillard at some point but I believe it yeah you know the but the ironic thing now is that in New York if you are if you live on like the you know whatever 60th floor of a, of a beautiful glass curtain building and you have this powerful view you know you mm -hmm. can see the entire city no one can see you you know what i mean the ironic thing is that now chances are another glass glass curtain tower is going to rise like at the same level yeah. <laughs> at the same level just a few a few uh, like a block over so all of a sudden mm -hmm. all these people can see into each other's lives at you know like you know, hundreds and hundreds of feet above the city. <laughs> I guess is equals, yeah. but it's funny. You know, that's part of that ubiquity. I guess yeah. the the idea of the window for me is fascinating in this sense. Mm -hmm. And going back to your point, because the glass itself and part of its properties is that, like at night, where wherever the light is not coming from, is where it like it becomes transparent. Yes, and I think that that's what the title makes of the project makes allusion to it, because in a sense. It, and back to your point of power, I think that there's like this sort of like privacy thing happening, yeah. and I and like and I and I felt that through the different configurations of like lighting arrangements of how the sun moves and what's reflecting and being reflected, it kind of like showed the aura, the aura a little bit of mm -hmm. what each building had. Like you can see in the in the set of images that some of them are more like dark and like morose almost, and like others are more like jolly or happy or like you know like bright or exactly, saturated exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like as you were saying sort of like watercolor or like yeah. almost like rendering yeah. properties of it so I think yeah there's definitely like a liquid but before I I continue about like the other projects I just want to say that this is something that is not included in the book but the exhibition that I did of this work mm -hmm. with Nominimo uh, which is was because uh, it is not operating anymore but it was Ecuador's most like prominent gallery yeah uh, I did show my first sculpture in that show which was a model that was trying to recreate a glass panel with the distortion mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. was a milled piece of mylar which had a film a dichroic film in the back yeah and it and it and it, it's exactly it like sort of bro it, it it fragmented light yeah. in a way that like it would happen and then I used that as a as a as a still life set, mm -hmm. and I produced a set of images that were like I was using it as a maquette to mm -hmm. produce a different set of images, trying to recreate the, the the effect of what was happening in the city, but in like a smaller, let's just call it like microscopic mm -hmm. kind of kind of way, you know. It seems like it's become part of your practice, like working yes. on a on a smaller scale with these maquettes or small models, models, yeah. sculptures that you cast yourself, and exactly. then sort of photograph almost in the spirit of like how you're looking at something on a on a huge scale something architectural correct I mean, so was that the was that the first time you did that that was the first time that happened and it's funny if like the translation between the two projects was almost literal because i started using the same material the uh -huh. plexiglass which had been used for some of the studies as yeah. formwork to yeah. like to 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 start working with like i almost went from like what was penetrable in mm -hmm. a way which was like the light and in glass and the transparency of it to the most like almost like impermeable material mm -hmm. to anything which is concrete you know yeah 
So in that sense, I definitely went for the polar opposite, yet I found similarities. The dialogue was more between negative and positive space, ones and zeros in a mm-hmm. way, like shadows and like light in that yeah. sense, you know? Because again, depending on the angle of incidence of the exposure, like uh, the concrete was generating these sort of like void things that, that were sort of abstract, like gestures that sort of like blurred the scale at which, mm-hmm. at which, at which uh, of what you were looking at. Mm-hmm. So that I think was having, working w- with surface, reacting to light allowed me to like, sort of like bridge this sort of like scale aspect mm-hmm. and work more with illusion a little bit, which, which is sort of similar from, from the first one, you know, from the first project with what I was doing with the maquette. So I think that that sort of, after, after working with that first model, moving to Beton came from this sort of like fictional aspect, adding this layer of fiction yeah. to the actual documentation of architecture, existing architecture and, and its properties. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how like the second body of work came about. And, and then, yeah, there was, there was an exhibition for it earlier this summer. Yeah, in, in Monterey. In correct. Monterey, yeah. correct. Not Monterey, California. No, <laughs> I can't. In Monterrey. Ma, yeah, I can't, see, I'm not even trying. It's funny because we had we had Fernando on, and uh, you know, for the, I think the first episode of the season, and he's also from Monterey, and he also says it beautifully. I just was like, <laughs> you gotta roll it. the R's. I can't roll my R's. I I, always, I never could. Always regretted it. Um, always felt like a poser if I tried. It's okay. Uh, yeah. Well, let's so let's talk about brutalism because. Yeah. It's super polarizing. A lot of people hate brutalism, yes. you know. What was your relationship to it, to it growing up? Growing up, there were a couple. Is it big in, in, in Guayaquil? No, not, not, not huge in Guayaquil. There was this very old and like, very ugly and like sort of like decrepit sort of ministry tower that they ended up tearing down because it, some people really considered it an eyesore and it was like derelict and like abandoned for some mm-hmm. time. But... That was one that like always circled around me, but uh, my story with brutalism had been more of like going to places and seeing it and like seeing that the, I think it's like a a noble material mm. in, in many ways. Yes, yeah. I did participate growing up, and I think that this sort of like in a way determines how I connect with like spaces and construction. I, I don't know why, but like when we built our home growing mm-hmm. up. My mom was always like curious of us learning and participating of like the adult things, and I guess me being the oldest was always like nosy and being around stuff. But mm-hmm. like, we they worked with like a small team of like an architect that was like friendly with my father, and like, and I I, I had the chance of like of like going to like the actual site and like seeing things and understanding the pouring and like floors and like all the structural things, and I think that that was. I always go back to that experience as to why that happened. You know, it's like, and yeah. it was interesting, the style. The house was kind of like funky. I mean, I would say it's like a, it was like a mix. Is your family the, still in that house? No, no, we split. The house got sold. I mean, it, 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 it didn't happen. We, well, we had it on, up until like the last two years. Yeah. So, I mean, it was always like a space and I look pictures of it and, and go back. But like the references of this architect friend family friend were, were strange she was like sort of like channeling like aldo rossi via mm-hmm. the barragan and mixing some crazy styles and things <laughs> and it was, no it's really crazy <laughs> I and I was, see this house. i'll show you pictures of it i was actually just like finding old pictures of mm-hmm. it to try to like come up with something to like some type of record of my recollection of what it was yeah, and what, cool. it, what it was because i think spaces determine who we are yes yeah, it's, it's inevitable like when you buy historically your memories i encounter that all oh, go back to spaces and places that i've been ideally or like uncomfortable or comfortable whatever way but uh so you were pouring concrete for this I, house i mean yeah i was i i wasn't i, I wasn't directly doing it, but i was like seeing it and knowing how long it would dry and knowing mm-hmm. all, knowing all of those things those questions you have when the material like, qualities yeah exactly i was yeah. like 13 around that time yeah. so it was like it was like maybe 12 13 so i was like i like this you know mm-hmm. I, I like the not knowing what it's gonna look like you know but uh that I think in terms of construction and understanding the material and its properties was an early exposure to it. And then, yeah, like I said, like trips and seeing and understanding space. I think Pantheon, again, going back to this, like a very like 
shocking sort of moment of seeing mm-hmm. that dome that of, of Castle Concrete like centuries ago. It's like it's like it's such a crazy building. It, it is a crazy. Building. I love that Thomas Struth photograph in there. Oh as my well. god, it's so good. <laughs> it's like how did he do it? He got like the whole, he almost went like three sixty degrees like vertical. I still ah. I have no idea what he did. I because it's funny. Did you try and photograph in there, or have yes. you made photographs in yes. the Pantheon? Yes, it's, 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 it's too big. It's almost like you can, you can't really like get so it. So you weren't successful. Because I, I was not I successful. I was not successful. <laughs> I was, and you know, it's funny you say that, but like maybe like earlier this year, I was like browsing because I mm-hmm. like another thing that we're we may or may not talk about today, sure. but it's like drones. And I think that like people are taking drones to places, and I don't have to own it to see people because people are oversharing. So I sometimes yeah. just if there is a place that I want to see mm-hmm. or I inspect in like a 360 degree of what like Google Earth does not allow me to yeah. I do searches for drone footage and like you'd be surprised at what you find. You can find there's wow. a lot <laughs> so I found this guy who had gone he, he went and like put a drone through the Oculus no. of the no. Pantheon <laughs> like and was, I was like this is amazing uh-huh. I was like f- fascinated with the thing for like a couple of days like yeah. looking at it making screenshots for research and reference and uh, and yeah I mean it's, it's like in a sanctioned way he did it or he just he just did it like he didn't make it go all the <laughs> way in but he would go enough to like you see the dome He's from like the hovering. top which you normally see he yeah, hovers yeah. He gets inside of, uh-huh. of the hole for the exposure <laughs> of the camera to change yeah. and like get the inside. Yeah, yeah. So you see the pattern of the floors, uh-huh. the grid pattern in the floors of the marble cuts, and it gives a pretty pretty interesting vantage point. That I want to see that. imagery that I have not seen. I'd be happy to share it. Yeah, the, it was like you know the, the funny thing about the drones is. You know, I feel like I almost I already missed the boat with the whole drone thing because yeah. I feel like there was a sweet spot in between the technology of a drone and the, and camera technology and that you can get like a crazy high resolution camera on mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. very small thing that you can control. That happened, and it took you know a, a solid maybe three four years for any sort of regulation or. I feel like now people are kind of savvy to it. Now I think if you put a drone above the Pantheon, maybe someone would come tap you on the shoulder but probably if they find you i mean i still there's like a subversive aspect to it i mean i don't want to i don't want to give the right the wrong advice here to people but i think it's a it's a nice it's a it's an insane tool for architectural photography yeah i think Do that you, is, have you done any drone stuff or? i have i have done some uh, some footage for certain clients or mm-hmm. things that i have had to um and yeah i, I mean even from a study again point of like seeing something from a different vantage point it it I don't, I don't disregard it as a tool. I think it's a very powerful tool. Honestly. Well, I guess I guess at its core, it's sort of one of those things like um, it's it's not a human perspective. You know, exactly. we're so used to seeing architectural photography, and we're so, so used to kind of digesting things like from, you know, I mean, we can do weird things with like camera perspective, yes. but for the most part, you know, you're sort of imagining like what does it feel like to be in this space. And a drone flips that on his head because it's... It's like you, literally, bird's eye view, yeah, literally. You yeah. can't, you're not ever going to be in that vantage point, you know? And sometimes it's like, it doesn't even take, I think like before people use these like elevators, street elevators yeah. to get vantage points. Now it's just like you leave the thing. You don't even have to put like a, a create a safety hazard for mm-hmm. anybody. And like you can still, it's just a matter of like a, a few hundred feet make a crazy difference i think i just think i I just think that it's like something that i always wonder when i'm inspecting or dissecting space as like a second opinion almost you know like Mm -hmm. seeing how it would look or or do stuff like that like what what has been some of your favorite trips to these brutalist structures that you photographed for baton um i really 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 loved uh and I owe myself a second visit to the Scarpa Cemetery mm-hmm. in in Italy, in the uh, Veneto region. Uh, that, I think, is like a real special place. I mean, just because just uh, first, how it's, it's, it stood the test of time in, in terms of like, I mean, how it, the condition that it's on. I think that Scarpa was a very... Uh, highly skilled level architect because he had a bit of an engineer in him as well Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so and he worked with great craftsmen but like it's just the details in there you know it's just I think that like using a material that is so raw 
he was able to create like a symphony almost, you know, of like different things, like the interior-exterior dialogue with shapes, how they connect and continue or end, and it's like open and you're in this sort of like transient sort of space of like life and death. Yeah. It's like a very special place. And the landscaping is very nicely done, the fencing. It's, it's, a, it's a very strange height fencing because it's not blocking the landscape. You're still connected and there's different levels around the place. I really, anyone who like is fascinated by like the brutalist or like concrete architecture like works to, to go check it out because it's really, really, really something else. I wanted to bring up a few pictures. Uh, yes. There you go. Yeah. So one of the things that I thought was kind of funny about this project is uh, with some of the with some of the cast forms. Mm -hmm. This is the Breuer, right? It uh, is definitely a cigarette. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like, it's like the the thing with the cast, and I think that I I skipped a very important part between yeah, the sure. two projects, which was that I, doing the residency at, uh, at Las Posas yeah. in Mexico yeah, was yeah. a very important point in terms of like my material, material exploration mm -hmm. with, the, with, with, with concrete and, and the mixes and the experimental uses of it. Uh, that was a great experience and being able to share with like younger people, architecture students and other, other working artists, mm -hmm. like well, exchange like the knowledge and like the, the approach to the practice and the explorations was a very, important stepping stone for like for the casts you know what because your... i'm not a trained sculptor i'm yeah. not a trained sculptor so these in the beginning were like sculptural gestures that i was mm -hmm. doing as models and they were very very empirical in terms of like how i came about like like i said like i derived from like using plexiform because i like it because of the of the finish that it had mm -hmm. i realized that concrete again surface that's like something that like i was fascinated with by how malleable the material was to it but yeah that was a, a, a quick parenthesis on on on, on that experience of being there and being in like a site where like a massive sculpture garden had been created uh -huh. by this patron of the surrealists um edward james mm -hmm. who, who 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 commissioned that to like a mexican craftsmen earlier in like the mid 20th century to like build that when they didn't in the middle of the, this is literally in the middle of the jungle where they didn't even have like power tools to work on that stuff they didn't have light to work on the stuff like they were like cutting formwork with like a saw <laughs> that's crazy and like candles so it's like yeah. fascinating to have seen some of that earlier formwork that mm -hmm. they had kept in this like plutarco who was like his man there in mexico to which he went just because he was fascinated by orchids. Mm -hmm. So this eccentric man built this sort of like sculpture gardens with like surrealist shapes in, in, in that he drew like freehanded. Like he just like went there the freehandedly, like drew the the shapes and the volumes that he wanted to do and then like disappeared. And he's like came back and then like they built thing, it all. Exactly. <laughs> So it's an interesting thing of like fabrication, early yeah. early types of fabrication and eccentricity, but it's amazing that it's still there. And uh, and like being there and like creating work surrounded by something like that it was truly inspiring in many ways. Mm -hmm. And like, I think that fed to like this desire to like continue to explore this material, you yeah. know? And it's sculptural properties that are evident in architecture such as the Brutalism, mm -hmm. you know? So, yeah, that it's, was just you know, a quick note. Like, so when you're when you're casting concrete forms, you're using plexi as a as a. Initially, I use plexi. I still use plexi, but I I I, I move more into wood. Okay. Because just like the demolding process with wood is, it's a little friendlier. Mm -hmm. But uh, but plexiglass offers a very durable type of like formwork for me, and the finish on the surface is uh, it, it's, it's quite nice. Like when concrete's poured in cities, you don't think of it as you think of it as having like a concrete surface, but it you know like the sort of what you think of as the standard, mm -hmm. but it really does like pick up surface qualities. Yeah. Like a you lot know, of it, yeah. you know in 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 Marfa how the how the works the concrete works yes. have like the texture of plywood. Yes, like you can see like ply, like the sort of plywood waves in them. You can totally see them, and I it's think crazy. that. And I read about those job works, and he apparently was using some type of like agent that he was put that they were putting on the on the formwork mm -hmm. that helped with the texture you mm -hmm. know it sort of like made them like because it's their perfect balance i feel because they have 
some wood texture, but at the same time, it's not like it's not overwhelming. Exactly, yeah. it's not distracting. So yeah. you're not, it's not distracting you from the volume. It's which like is, a detail. Most people don't don't notice it or yeah. don't pick it up. But, and yeah. I read some of the fabrication of that process, and I was like, this is amazing. You know, mm -hmm. and now you encounter that some of like people like Herzog and Demeron, they're treating their formwork for like making walls and then putting this type of like it's like a latex type of thing that they put around it. But this was like a an earlier example of it you know? and I was like nice I mean the job concrete explorations are <laughs> you've been right yeah I've been I've been I've what been. was I, your time like I enjoyed it I think it was uh, I think that they're perfectly placed I mean I, I, I again <laughs> from like an aerial standpoint or like Google Earth sort uh -huh. of sort of uh, sort of uh, study I think that the way he arranged them and the rhythm between them mm -hmm. and how they respond to light they generate certain volumes and geometries that not you cannot really see mm -hmm. and i wonder if he had some type of like topographical type of like study or cared much i'm sure he cared about the side and the orientation certainly but in terms of like i wonder what he would have thought about that sort of like response that they had from like a otherworldly mm -hmm. kind of scene you know mm -hmm. like from space you know it's like in like a civilization kind of way you know it's like i don't know i mean the show, the show, I also uh, liked about Jordan Concrete, I liked the buildings that he was enabled to finish, uh, mm. that I saw and learned from uh, this show at the Center for Architecture, where they presented some of his architectural work, and this was like a plan of like, I think, 16 buildings, or a specific number of like, three different configurations of buildings, mm -hmm. and they were meant to be like, uh, showing work at different scale mm -hmm. but like in an individual like one work per building kind of stuff and what i could find on researching was was kind of fascinating of like how he wanted still wanted to push the same type of shape of where the aluminum works are mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but make the dome and like a shell structure of concrete i mean i think that it presented a lot of challenges but i i appreciate his curiosity to like continue to push a material that seems easy and one would think you just were it's the concrete science is, is quite complex, you know, mm -hmm. it, 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 it's, it takes genius to like elevate it to the levels of like the Swiss, for instance, you know, <laughs> all those bridges. Yeah. <laughs> where is, uh, where is this? This is a, that's a Clorindo Testa building in uh, the Biblioteca Nacional in mm -hmm. Buenos Aires. Uh, he was sort of like, some of his shapes were like. I think he might have taken some of the Corbusier references mm -hmm. quite literal in terms of like machine for living because yeah. you literally look down at this building and it looks like a washing machine. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's like, or an engine, like the parts of it are, are, are like, have very, that, that very type of like, uh, of, of shape, you know, like a mechanical sort of almost like functioning. So yeah like an engine exactly are you are you are you on the top of it here this is I'm, I'm inside it's like a suspended sort of like structure it's like a it's like a it's got like a column in the middle yeah. that holds a larger volume on the top and this is underneath the the the, the main building mm -hmm. it's got like a staircase that takes you up it's like it's funny because it's like a lot of these works and this is what's interesting also about having the 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 models you know and with the way that you photograph these brutalist buildings, you you kind of can't tell the scale anyway. Even when you are working in a large building, you can't really sometimes because you can't tell the detail, it's somewhat abstracted too. So they they really do have like a language. This one going back to yeah. that image, the Scarpa, the, not the Scarpa, the the Clorindo Testa building. Yeah. I encountered those type of like industrial shapes, and I've been doing recently. This I, I haven't shown this, but it's it's been something that like uh, I've been exploring, which mm -hmm. is the the way in which the, the the foam is used, the packaging foam, the shapes that the packaging foam has on like TV sets or stuff like that as a ready-made, uh -huh. I've been making molds of them or sometimes using them as molds and they produce this sort of like almost like anatomical type of shapes. You Do know? you mean like those big rolls of foam? Like No, they're kind of like styrofoam. There's okay, the yeah. hard styrofoam things that, that are the edges of the of the of the TV, say you buy a TV set oh, or something like that. Oh, yeah, like yeah, like, yeah. The, like the inserts. The like, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. those things, have, uh, I'm fascinated to like how arbitrary or like, you know, those shapes are. Mm -hmm. And I know that there's like, it's like, a, it, it speaks about like an industriality of like fast producing. Mm -hmm. Some of them are cardboard, some like papier mache and like, I, I find that there are certain coincidences with some of like the, 
some of the aspects of that uh, architecture, that brutalist, early brutalist architecture. I can see it. I yeah. mean, well, I guess there's maybe. I mean, I, I you know, I, I guess there's like kind of advanced brutalist buildings that definitely do dip into the, you know, they're more like architecturally driven. But I think at its core, brutalism was sort of like an economical way to go right. about doing a building. You know, right. I mean, it wasn't. It was sort of like an engineering solution. It wasn't so... Very aspirational, too. A new yeah. topic in its own way, which is kind yeah. of like what I got me into it. But yeah. Like socialist. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that got you into it? A little bit, I think. Yeah, compa- leaving, leaving the glass thing of yeah. it, I think yeah, that yeah. it was like... And if you see the MoMA show, the, the Yugoslavia show, yeah. it speaks to that sort of like post-war sort of like let's rebuild let's do it like at the lowest cost and mm-hmm. like let's send a message you know yeah. what i mean there was a, a lot of like symbology encrypted into it and heroism a little bit yeah. so i think that yeah that definitely got me into it in terms of that sort of like being the opposite of like a locks tower you know what i mean so well it's in, like you're in you're in england and like the country's been destroyed you know so right. and what's the best way to go about rebuilding mm-hmm. and and what are your ideals and you know goals for that yeah, it's, but it's like trends too you know it's like yeah. it's funny it's i think that that you mentioned it earlier and i think that it's it, it's 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 true it's it, there's been like a like there's been like a renaissance of like yeah. brutalism now it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but like we don't know how that's gonna last you know what i mean it's like i don't know so let's talk about this this final body of work subluminous yes it occurs to me that there's something really interesting about um about this body of work in that if you if you kind of already had had moved away when you really started looking seriously at, at photography and, and and architecture rendered photographically, what was it like returning to your hometown and making pictures there? I guess sort of for the first time, right? Yeah, uh, conceptually and under like a project, yes. Yeah. yeah. So in that sense, yes. Yeah. Uh, I've had my problems with uh, with with how urbanism occurs in Ecuador and like I think that this is a common symptom in uh, in developing countries mm-hmm. how arbitrary it is how like bribe oriented it is how like just like zero zoning criteria pay to play tends, tends to happen yeah, so yeah I mean I think that in that sense the city as an arena invited me to try to like see that in a different way i had flown over Guayaquil a million times like i love i've always like that's how i mentioned drones i've always loved being above and like seeing the vantage points i had friends who were doing flight school and i would like jump in with them so they could like have complete their hours you mm-hmm. know it's like i'm like the, in like a single engine plane and i was like yeah like exposing myself to that but i, I, I was that committed you know mm-hmm. what i mean mm-hmm. so I've, I've always loved that helicopter flights every time i could or like a ford or like or wanted to go see something else so there's always been that sort of like having that vantage, impossible vantage point a little yeah. bit. So I already had done my research in terms of like what I wanted to see. So in that sense, as I say, it's like it was a good arena to try to like see it with this with this film that that really like allowed to see the, the what you cannot normally see, you know, which are the waves, you know, the, in, the, the infrared waves. Because you're using, you're using Kodak Aerochrome film. Correct. I'm using Aerochrome. I, I managed to find someone who still has some and bought a lot from it. We, um, should, we should say for clarity, so, so Kodak Aerochrome is, is now kind of an extinct film correct. that was originally used for military purposes. Correct. To surveil areas that had warfare material and like by contrast, the rays that like chlorophyll and, and vegetation produce, they would detect if there was, by contrast, some like metal, metal or like exactly, or yeah, other, artillery other. Or, or correct armor because exactly. it render it basically basically. Uh, I'm just trying to, for for clarity's sake for for whoever's listening. It's this film takes anything that's green that has chlorophyll in it and it renders it in this sort of bright pink, red, magenta, magenta this like crazy crazy color. So any sort of forested area or any sort of kind of natural area turns into this sort of abstraction yeah. in, a, in a sense. That is very, uh, that is, it, only, it doesn't only render chlorophyll, but it's like heat too. So mm-hmm. I think that in that sense, it was interesting because it's just like signal that is being reflected. And again, light being reinterpreted by this set of rules that this uh, film is giving. So 
I knew how brutal and merciless the, the weather is in Ecuador, in Guayaquil, particularly humid, gross, and like in that sense, and like it's very cloudy there. It's uh -huh. almost like so cloudy, like that the water is evaporating and there's like a constant overcast of uh -huh. like low clouds. So it's like the London of South America. <laughs> I guess but it doesn't rain. I mean, it rains in the rainy season, but it's just like it's it's, it's tough weather, man. It's like yeah. I've been to very hot places, but the humidity there is it's something else. You know, it's like so in that sense, I I wanted to see like the hues. I had shot the film already f for this project in other cities. Like I I done it in Buenos Aires. I done it in. In, in Marfa, I done it in uh, here in New York, and and and, uh, and yeah, I, and I had used it aerially as well. I, I I flew over New York and had made some pictures circa 2015 about this project because I was curious to see again like the nature relationship with You're in a helicopter with, with yeah oh cool yeah i've never done that i've never done the helicopter flight over new york it's interesting i mean it's limiting you cannot move too much if yeah. you're doing a open door kind of thing mm -hmm. but it's 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 the ultimate place to like do it I yeah mean, it's yeah, like yeah. it's like it's 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 beautiful it's amazing it's like it really gives you like a sense of understanding the city in like a completely different way but uh how did you first like what was the first step you took in order to actually acquire the film but what, like when did you even become aware of it when did you know you wanted to use aerochrome I, I had seen the work of richard moss mm -hmm. and, and 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 i first saw it there i saw it on uh, and I saw a show of, of his work and I, and I was like, I'd be curious to, to see if there's any, any stock of this film left. So that was even, even when it was being produced, it was hard to get. It yes. was, it was never a, yeah. it was never a consumer product. Exactly. You know? They say, Kodak claims it is, but I, I agree with you. I don't no, think it was, it, was like, it was like rare. Yeah. 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 And it stopped being produced in 2011. So that's mm -hmm. still a long time ago. I mean, mm -hmm. So, <laughs> so how'd you go about finding it? I searched everything. First, I got my hands on some like uh, 35 millimeter mm -hmm. that the website sold. And I was like, bought a, a, a big batch of it and tried it. And it wasn't great. Mm -hmm. It wasn't great. It was like super expired, poorly kept, a lot of grain on the, on the close shadows and stuff like that. Yeah. And it was like, ah. There was also a learning curve with the filters because each filter that you use changes the, the, the way in which the, 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 the filters literally filters the, the, the wavelengths of, of, of the, of the, of the signal. Light. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there was a bit of like trying that out and testing different things until I eventually got my hands on some medium format, proper orange filter, which is a, a neutral setup, mm -hmm. the most neutral of setups. You know, so even if I'm using something that that is like sort of like uh, very surreal, super surreal and dreamy and like stuff like that. I still wanted to re register skin tones if there yeah. were any or like certain like white balance point that that tied me to reality. Yeah. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. So that was kind of like the formula to it. And then then came the desire of like using it for its uh, initial like, you know, like conception. I mean, the mm -hmm. film was created for aerial photography, the hence the aerochrome thing. So it's high speed, I mean, mid speed, 400 ISA, ISO, uh, ASA, I guess. But, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I consider the, the helicopter flight for shooting the main images of the body of work of Sublimis, like one of the most challenging jobs or gigs that mm -hmm. I have ever had to do. Like yeah. I was flying with an open door helicopter with one camera changing film as the helicopter moves. A medium format camera? Yes. What are you shooting on? I'm a media seven. Oh God. <laughs> and I, and you know, it's like I have 10 shots and I had to yeah. change film. Yeah. I'm trying to imagine like trying to load, load Incom a media seven. Incomplete darkness with them. So I had a black bag. <laughs> On my crotch area, and then I was like putting my hands in to like try to change the film. Yeah, I'll tell you, try to aim for the little slot that you have to load medium yep. format film without seeing. Yeah, on like a non-standard package because the person who sells it to me he repackages mm -hmm. the film on other formats to be to fit one twenty. Wow. So it's like. Like he recuts them and stuff. Exactly. And you're so, also wearing like those those uh, those headphones that they make you wear in helicopters. Everything. It was like and, a blur. Like, yeah, the, the headphones come with a big cable that is the, in front of me. And so. the Mia 7 is not an easy camera to load. It's kind of a little finicky, I always yeah, found. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's so funny. Yeah, so that was... that was. Uh, but you made it. That was tricky. We made it. The pictures were made. Yeah. <laughs> 
it's uh, it was good it was gratifying then like hoping that like that it's gonna render the mm -hmm. same thing so you finish a flight you feel certain way and like i did shot over i cut some of the images but it's i still managed to make a a big a big lot of them you know mm -hmm. a good a good number of them and uh and yeah i think that uh that it was a great experience and it showed me many things mm -hmm. from going back to the idea of the study of like space and seeing in a different way it's uh it just confirmed some of the ideas that i had in terms of like the use and abuse of space and how can things be better i mean mm -hmm. actually people were so compelled in the city by the show which was very well received that they actually like the the mayor of the city wants actually acquired a work and wants to hang it at like the, 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 the city hall that's cool because of like how they connected with the city and what, what you, they saw. I mean, what do you like, feel about the mayor? Are you on I know you have your problems with the zoning. Yes, so. I mean, I think that, like, for them, it was more from a documentarian standpoint and, like, yeah. uh, they, 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 they see the embellishment aspect of the yeah. film. They're not necessarily picking up their mistakes, but I think that the mayor, he's done certain things that are good and other things that are not so good. I think that he's not like a crazy market person. I think more, more of the, like the bigger mistakes had been done before. Yeah. I think that now with like ultra transparency sort of things and scrutiny on like politicians, they're more careful with like mm -hmm. what they make or like there's some type of like more of a general consensus in terms of like the stuff. But yeah, it's just like certain avenues and things that should not be where they are, you know, like and things like that. But what was like growing up there? I mean, I mean, growing up there was—it's uh, like an industrial—it's like an industrialized city, you know. I mean, yeah. it's, it's not—it's. We had the beach closed, so whenever we had holidays, we were able mm -hmm. to like hop on a car and like uh, ninety minutes you're in like a very beautiful beach. Mm -hmm. Like most beaches in South America, like super wide, water's warm. It's it's it's, it's enjoyable. Uh, we had a house there, but in terms of like growing up in the city, it's, it's complicated, man. It's a city that it has. Right now it's a little safer, but it's it's sort of like sort of like crime ridden, you know, mm -hmm. like people live in gated communities, and uh, I think that there's a psychologically there's a there's a I mean I, I constantly go back to it of like mm -hmm. living in a place with a fence, you know, mm -hmm. and I understand that there are those kinds of developments here as well or like in other countries, but the idea of private and public spaces, I think that is a uh, it's a little complicated there. Yeah, I think, and uh, and yeah, I think that that a little bit conditions me in a way of thinking, and, and like Marx, and it's, as I said, it's something that I would really like to explore in like future part of my work down there. You know, mm -hmm. I think that maybe these sublimis has like sort of like planted a seed in terms of like that space, but I, I I'm very interested in that dynamic and transference of like why why does the why does the gated community have the pretty park that no one can use? You yeah. know, no one really uses. You know, it's like it's just a fence. You know, so the idea of fences and then blocking everything—it's like tricky. You uh, like earlier, you know, we were talking about light, and you were saying that you can like you can get down with like seeing it as a, something spiritual, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you named this this series after after the Barnett Newman painting, mm -hmm. uh, the 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 big horizontal red one at, yes. at MoMA. Yeah. Uh, the biggest one. Uh, what was why? Why did you choose Barnett Newman as sort of the namesake? I think that uh, I think that there is something about the scale again of, of, of with that uh, body of work of his in terms of like how they were they were they were meant to be seen. Mm -hmm. That he was inviting people to like to like inspect up close. I think that that connected to me a little bit with the with the topographical analysis that you're doing of the city when mm -hmm. it's like that. He had the lines of the, the what do you call the sips, the yeah, sips, the zips. The zips yeah, that the zips. he was putting in them as like a change of scale. So mm -hmm. I think that there was something in this sort of sea of red that was analogous to like the aerial images mm -hmm. of the of the work. But uh but I do I do I do sincerely appreciate Barney Newman's theory that like abstract art has a spiritual allows to like a spiritual type of like connection with like mm -hmm. some higher order or, or whatever it is that anyone believes in you know i think that there's like a meditation or an interpretation that is more freely and it's ad hoc to whoever is reading the images under frame of reference so i think that it was very pertinent in that sense that specific work to my work in this sense working with that you as well mm -hmm. so yeah 
I also, I, I want to talk about tennis. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> because it's a big part of your life, right? It is. What, it is. What going, back, this... going back to your question of growing up, lots of sports. I figured, being, yeah. yeah. Going, I mean, that's a positive thing. There's a sports and like competitive leagues and stuff like that that we grew up doing. My dad played volleyball competitively and like, you know, it was like sports was like the way. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, uh, yeah, I, I started playing tennis late very late i i started playing tennis at 15 really yes wow see that also really surprised me because they say that you know they say that if you don't start super young you Mm -hmm. it's so hard to develop that kind of those sort of micro movements i think more of like the head Mm -hmm. personally i think the psychological i think and that's something that i encountered because if i started playing at 15 i mean i did learn when i was a kid Mm -hmm. but competitively i didn't get into it until when i was like 15 and it was because like you know, people like their idols in South America. Mm-hmm. So there was like a, a, a guy who was been like the best, the number one. He was the number one racket for for Ecuador for like a long time. His name was Nicolas is Nicolas Lapenti, mm-hmm. and like he he made semis to the Australian, stayed in the top twenty for like eight years or something like that. So he was kind of like our idol growing yeah. up. So he created a generation, and I definitely was part of that. And um, but I was late, you know. I was playing. I was playing the national tournaments and stuff with people who had been playing since they were like eight, nine, yeah. and like you know, it's just like who's this person that shows up? Yeah, they can hit, but like when they f- get into that sort of like competitive like clinch moment, like you know, they're gonna have an edge on you. They've been on that situation like twenty, thirty times mm-hmm. already, you know. So in that sense, uh, that was challenging. But you're really you're really competing. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, yeah, I was, yeah, I was definitely playing the tournaments and stuff like that, and 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 I. I played competitive enough that I got into college, you know, mm-hmm. like, I mean, I wasn't recruited at Penn State, but like I walked onto the team and played there for like a full year uh-huh. know, until it made sense because yeah. I wasn't getting scholarship and it wasn't really, it was like a big time commitment. I'm know? sure. And it's also big, hard on your body too, right? Totally. But it was like, I mean, that, I always said that, that was the best shape I ever was in yeah. my life. I mean, like 185 pounds, 6'2", I was like... <laughs> like going to the gym like three times a week lifting yeah. weight like my body like leg press I mean it's like mm-hmm. pretty intense and I definitely raised the level there and uh, and I, even if I didn't start on many of the ties I still got to practice with guys who were like super high level I mean like I, I think I told you this before but uh Kevin Anderson, who's now ranked like top 10 in the world was like played for Illinois he was in our conference so I was like sitting like on the bench across the street from him. I'm did you ever play Kevin Anderson? Time. I didn't play Kevin Anderson, but our number <laughs> one did, and he got spanked. <laughs> you should lie about it and say you beat him in college. Oh my god, <laughs> that'll be a big ass lie. Uh-huh. When he when he served, it was like insane. It's like you could tell that someone has it. You know, mm-hmm. that they're gonna be go a long way. I mean, yeah. like every time he served, it sounded like the whole like tennis facility was gonna like come down or mm-hmm. something. Like it was like thunder, and. Uh, yeah, I mean, college tennis was a great experience, and I've since then I've continued to like to like do it and 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 always like take pictures at tournaments and stuff like that, trying to capture some of like the the dynamic aspect of the game. I think mm-hmm. that there's something cathartic about the the, the the pace of the game. You know, that sort of like rhythm that, that that exists, and like people like Foster Wallace have spoken about yeah. that. He has that was, amazing essay about Roger Federer. It's so good. Yeah, it's one so of my favorites. Good. It's unbelievable. But yeah, I mean, I've, I've had the opportunity to also like work on it a little bit editorially. You just were in, you went this year to Cincinnati, right? I went, the, yeah. the Masters 1000 tournament. I went to that tournament. I learned about that via Instagram because you put up a picture with Juan Martin Del Pocher. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what's going on? It was amazing. I mean, uh, how's Juan Martin? You guys best friends now? <laughs> it definitely seems as such. I got introduced to him and uh, he was very sweet. As sweet as I thought he would be. And uh, we were talking about like what, what I did and like all that stuff. And, uh, and Is he interested in art and photography? Surprisingly, he said that if he had not been a tennis player, he would have been an architect. Really? And I was like, wow, that's amazing. He's like, yeah. My sister did. His sister, I think, passed away uh, hmm. when he was younger. Uh, she she was a working architect, and like I think he, she was like they were very close. Mm-hmm. So I think they say when he kisses this, the 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 sky after a match is towards her. I think so. I think it's like but they were very close. So he must have participated about that. I mean, we didn't get to chat a lot 
of time, but uh, I mean, I thank the rain delays that were happening <laughs> in Cincinnati to get a chance to meet one of my tennis idols for sure. Man. Yeah. So yeah, it was a, it's it's an interesting being be, being backstage at the tour and like and like seeing athletes like that on like a sort of like circus type of like movement. It, yeah. it, it's 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 complicated. I mean, they definitely do have to compromise on many things of like having a normal life for like a window of time in which they're going to be at their apex physical performance and make enough money to like move on to the next thing. You know, mm -hmm. it's like a, I mean, it used, they used to say it was a short career, the tennis career. I think that that has completely changed now. Mm -hmm. And it's like players have expanded their sort of like career spans. Mm -hmm. I think a little bit because of the, the kinesiology science yeah. and like, treatment and like you I mean know, LeBron James travels with a hyperbaric chamber I, I, I believe that he's a, a man I yeah. mean, I'm sure you feel great after that. <laughs> and the ice baths and uh -huh. whatnot so they have to make sacrifices I mean it's into like it rains you cannot play you have to be up until 3 a.m. then do press conferences like it's like it's it's, it's like you feel that corporate like pressure and burden that they have to like commit to, you know, uh, they're instrumented by like a bigger cause, but it's it's still um, amazing how that is irrelevant when they step each other on, and face each other on the court and it has that sort of like gladiator aspect, mm -hmm. individual gladiator aspect that I love about the sport. Vicente, thank you so much. Thanks, Will. I'd like to thank Vicente Munoz and Audrey Rose Smith. And I'd also like to thank Paul Knox, who wrote the essay in Virtual Transparency. Again, if you'd like a copy of the book, you can find a link to it on Amazon in the show notes. It's in a limited edition of 1,000 copies, so get one way you can. This show is produced by Sarah Levine. Our music is by Jack and Eliza. Remember to check out my Portrait of Vicente online at williamjesslaird.com slash imageculture and at our Instagram at williamjesslaird or at imageculture. Thanks so much for listening. See you next week.